This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Hi, I'm Richard Gershon, the host of In Legal Terms and a professor at the University of Mississippi School of Law. If you miss a live In Legal Terms episode, find our podcast, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. MPB Think Radio, this is Money Talks. I'm Kevin Farrell with Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, President of New Perspectives, and Ryder Taft, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives. We aren't in the studio this week. Instead, we'll re-air some recent conversations from the show. In the first part, Nancy and Ryder answer a couple of questions about credit cards. Scott, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hey, I was going to talk to uh, one thing. As a parent, something we should do, I do with my children, um... My daughters are younger, about maybe 13 or 14. I added them as an authorized user to my credit card account. And when they got older, they already had credit established. You know, um, that's the only way to help kids establish credit by adding them to your account. Uh, my youngest daughter, she, she, well, she'll be 25 next week, but um, she purchased a home two years ago, her first home, at 1.9% interest rate, 15 wow. year mortgage. Mm-hmm. She really had no other credit, but by me adding her to my Years old, all those years of her credit report is several years of good credit, good penny history. She'd be able to get into a home at 1.9%. So that's one thing we could do. Of course, if you have bad penny history, you wouldn't want to do that to them. But uh, it basically helps her out, you know, in life. So, and I did it for both my daughters, basically. And uh, basically, it helped them in life. Well, yeah, I mean, that is certainly one thing you can do. I don't know that I would do it for a 13 or 14 year old, you know, maybe when they get to be a senior in high school. And uh, that's typical for parents. If they they start them with a credit card, it is going to be under the parent's credit and the parent's signature. Mm -hmm. But then that child will be on the card. That's typical to send them off to to school because they need some sort of card. And, yes, you can build credit that way. But I would be careful about starting it too young. Um, Well, I I didn't actually give them a card. No, they never did get the card, but Mm -hmm. for the the credit-building purpose. So okay, gotcha. Sure. Yeah. Sure. They never, ever, 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 even when they older, got the physical card. You know, <laughs> sure. Just for the crew. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, yes and but, um, you know. I would point out as well, you know, just as if not more important than uh, just the authorization on your car to have so they'll start building a credit report. Because that, that's often people's challenge, right, is, is saying, well, OK, how do I establish right, credit yeah. without ever having gotten credit before? If I need credit to get credit, that's a very big conundrum and you crack the code for your children. And that's fantastic. But also education. Uh, your children need to know if they come out of college with a great credit score, they can do a lot of stuff with that. Uh, good and bad. Um, they can get credit cards on their own and rack up a lot of uh, a lot of charges that they can't pay back on their own because their credit is so good. And also, just another risk, and, and you mitigated some of this by not actually giving them a car, but depending on different companies do it different ways, but sometimes an authorized user is, they are equally as liable for that payment as you. 
So that means that, as you pointed out, your good credit benefited them. But if you had bad credit, it would draw back on them. And you don't know. I mean, we don't know over the next year, two years, five years, are we going to miss a payment? Are we going to lose a job and not be able to cover our credit card? So always be very careful with that. And uh, like I said, the, the education component, making sure your children understand about money, how to earn money, how to pay off their debts, how, you know, how the credit system works. Those are very important aspects. So I, I think for a, you know, adding a child as an authorized user, as long as you know, kind of going in with open eyes about it, is can be a good idea. Uh, I just do want the broader audience to kind of know what what are the risks there, and what are other other things you could run into. All right, Scott. They don't listen. They don't listen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if they don't listen, I don't know if I'd want to add them to my credit card because not only could they rack up a debt on it, I could rack up a debt and make them. They could rack up a debt and make me responsible for it, and they could rack. I could rack up a debt and make them responsible for it. So that's 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 the fire you're playing with. All right, Scott. Thanks for your call. Glad to see that it worked out for you. It is a good idea in, in the right circumstances. Uh, I would say, uh, at Ryder, the education piece that goes along with it is important. You know, maybe even share that statement as it comes each month with the, the authorized user to let them understand how the whole system works. Yeah, have them listen to Money Talks on MPB Tuesday mornings at nine. <laughs> yeah, a.m. but wouldn't you be afraid that they call the credit card companies and say, "I, I, I lost, lost my card. Yeah, I, mean, I need a new car." Now, see, Nancy, there you are that's giving the teenagers. Uh, see, I'm a, I'm a yeah. parent here. I'm thinking. I mean, that's 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 an aspect, and I mean again, you, you you've got to realize what you are doing by adding them as a authorized user. Again, it may differ from from bank to bank, from issuer to issuer, but um, there may be some consequences, and and I think everyone needs to understand what those consequences are. Good morning, Chris. What do you have for us? Hey, good morning. So I have a question about uh, balance transfers. So I, one of my 2023 financial goals is to eradicate my credit card debt, get to that fresh start that you all are talking about. And I recently had to almost practically last year get close to maxing out one of my credit cards for some dental work that was necessary. And I'm having trouble paying more than just a minimum payment. Mm. So I got an offer in the mail for a 0% interest APR for 21 months on balance transfers. I thought, well, let me apply to that card. I can transfer my balance and then my, my monthly payments will go further to eradicating that debt. But the credit limit that I was approved for on that new card was only about half of my total outstanding balance on my current card. Mm. So I'm curious if the balance transfer is still worth it at that zero percent interest and just transferring half the balance from my current card, or if I should just continue trying to make more than the minimal payment on the card that I have right now. My interest is setting about 25%. It's really, really, uh, yeah, it's really difficult. Uh, yeah, Chris, so that's an interesting thing. And I was kind of writing down uh, questions people need to be asking themselves when they're looking at a balance transfer and you hit one of them, on, uh, hit that nail on the head with the credit limit. So your credit limit, they you could transfer half of it. I do think, uh, I don't know the uh, dollar amount, but my guess is that moving from 25% to 0%, even just on half of it, is going to be worth it. What you often have, 
have, always watch out for this, what you often have on balance transfer cards is a fee, and that could be either a percentage or a flat dollar rate. So that can make it, a flat dollar rate can make it less worth it for small balances. Say you're transferring $1,000 and they want to charge a $100 fee for that. Well, that's all of a sudden a 10% charge, and maybe that 0% financing is a little less attractive. Um, in your case, what kind of sounds like a strategy to me is you've got 21 months of 0% interest. Transfer over, make the minimum payment on the free one, and really hit the other one as hard as possible. But but uh, the, the kind of next level thing to do here as well is um, check with your current card and see if you can get your credit limit raised. Uh, get it right without having them do a hard pull would be ideal. Uh, but just credit card companies will often, if you've been a good customer, raise your credit limit. And you've got a perfectly valid reason for wanting your credit limit raised. You can say, well, I had to max it out for some emergency dental procedures. I just, I'm uncomfortable carrying such a high balance. I would like a little bit of wiggle room. I think it helped my credit score. They should be sympathetic to that sort of argument, depending on the company. Once you have that higher limit, you can turn around and then show the balance transfer company, hey, I actually have a higher limit elsewhere. Why don't you offer, say you've you've got $5,000 on one card, why don't you offer $5,000 balance as well? Maybe they're not going to offer you the whole thing, but that might be a way to get that raised. Um, They may also be willing to raise it once you've transferred some money over, and again, look at one, how long that intro period is, how long you have to transfer money over, and two, if there's any, again, additional fees, maybe the first transfer is free, maybe the second transfer is $100, I don't know. They can, they make up the terms of these. They're not, they're not super standardized like a mortgage or something. So, uh, you've looked at a lot of the aspects, uh, you've caught some of them. There's definitely some ways you can play that though. I think on that offer for the balance transfer, it's very important for you to look at the details. Mm. Find out what is the percentage charge that they're going to hit you with for the balance transfer. Typical is around 3%, could be higher. It is. And you need to, yes, factor that in. Also, read the fine print as far as what they expect each month in a payment. Sometimes there's a minimum payment. If you don't make that minimum payment, then that 0% disappears and that goes to their variable rate, which is often higher than what you're currently paying on that other card. Um, so watch for that. And I like Ryder's idea of using this as a relief valve. Whatever is the minimum payment on the, the balance transfer at 0%, you have 21 months to really knock down the other high interest card. And that's a strategy that you can use. Also, look at if you've gotten this offer from one company, go ahead and proceed with it. I agree that moving half is still probably beneficial for you. You may get other offers along the way that you can do the same thing. So be careful. But the other thing I always say to people with balance transfers, mark your calendar. Don't let yourself go one day beyond their offer or you're going to get hit with big charges. We are talking about credit cards. And just a quick review, some of the uh, terms that we've kind of thrown out there already. Credit limit is the maximum amount of money you can borrow on your credit card. The billing cycle is the amount of time between the last statement closing date and the next that gives you uh, that's uh, factors in when your payment is due. And then the APR is the annual percentage rate, the interest rate you're charged. And we said sometimes fixed, sometimes variable. 
And uh, Nancy, the variable rates are usually tied to what? Oh, they can be tied to all kinds of things, but uh, just general rates, uh, they usually use – what is the standard the, one? The prime rate. The prime rate. Um, and some some number of points above that. Um, and, of course, it's all – A gonna, large number of points above A large above that. number of points above that. And the rate you're going to get is going to be dependent on your credit score. Mm-hmm. And so the better your credit score – the lower that rate that credit card company is going to charge you because they're competing for your business. And remember, every credit card company, whether you pay off that balance every month or not, they're making money every time that card is swiped. So that retailer is going to take a haircut somewhere in the range of around 3% just for that purchase. So they want you to purchase and use their card, which is why they offer rewards, all kinds of extra cash back, everything to get you to swipe that card. But um, even then, um, even with good credit and even when you're paying it off, they're making money. Which um, you, you said the thing about the, the a lot of small businesses I've noticed these days are giving a separate price for yes. cash or credit. Yes. And then I again, just saw it yesterday on on actually on a billboard of, of just two different um, prices, depending on whether you're going to pay cash or card. And uh, certainly have a local restaurant I go to, and they will ask you, are you going to pay by card or are you going to pay by cash? And that makes a difference. And they will just slap on that 3% charge if it's a card. Nancy and Ryder aren't in the studio this morning, so this is a best of episode. And in the next segment, the topic is financial advisors. Janet in Louisville is on the line. Thanks for calling, Janet. What do you have for us? Um, I talked to a personal investment um manager and he suggested that I invest in SEI investments and um, been asking people around if they know anything about it. And I'm would you know if y'all did. Okay, Janet, would you say that again, those letters? S as in C, E as in Echo. Oh, SEI. So SEI is a um, family of mutual funds that mostly uh, does what we call passive investing. And passive investing is simply, you know, you're not trying to pick whether uh, Apple is better than Facebook. You're just buying a group of investments that represent different indexes. So that is a good approach. Um, Still, when you do that, you need to find out with each of those funds, because I believe SEI still does mostly what we call open-end mutual funds, that um, those may have higher expense ratios than if you use exchange-traded funds. I'm not sure if they're doing any of that right now. Do you know, Ryder? I'm, I'm I'm not sure, but SEI could also be just the the brokerage firm that he is working for. I mean, he could be selling these funds, and so that is what he's offering. I mean, they they do offer more than just the fund itself. It it may be he is an SEI advisor. It's unclear well, uh, what yeah, exactly uh, he's saying. I've just run into a lot of financial advisors who have gone that route over the last decade or so, and they mainly put their clients with those SEI funds, but it is passive investing, which would be could be fine. Um, we do a lot of passive investing ourselves, but you just need to check on what is is that going to cost? What are the what is the expense ratio of each of those funds? What is that person going to charge you in addition to that? 
Right. Okay. Um, Janet, you can also do your own research. You can go to Morningstar.com. You can put in the name or you can ask this advisor for the symbols. There's, uh, if it's a mutual fund, it will be five letters with an X at the end. You can plug that symbol into Morningstar.com and find out all kinds of information. What does that particular fund invest in? What is its holdings? How much do you pay for it? How do you get in and out of it? All those things will be there. Okay, can you do that with Vanguard? And yes, yes, any so, of those you can. Uh, go to Morningstar.com. You need the symbol. So any opened in mutual fund, again, will have five letters with an X at the end. If it's an exchange-traded fund, it's probably going to be three. Do any of them have four letters? I think it's just some three. Do, some will have four. Some will have four. Um, and you can plug that in and find out all kinds of information about that fund. Remember, a fund is just a portfolio of other investments. So you need to peek into that portfolio to see, well, th- are those the things I want to own? And uh, if someone is managing that or monitoring it, how is it performed over the long haul? And how much am I paying for that? Nancy, what are some things to think about when you're considering getting a financial advisor? Well, the first thing you need to ask yourself is, do I really need an advisor? And uh, there's Of course you do. <laughs> <laughs> no, Everyone some... can give well, good advice. <laughs> some people are just uh, comfortable and prefer to do it on their own. And for those people, that's not what Ryder and I are here for. <laughs> Go your way. Go. So, um, but uh, other people like to have someone just peek in on what they're doing on an occasional mm-hmm. basis. We sometimes do that. So look to see if you if that's who you are. Then do you want to hire somebody on an hourly basis? just to look objectively and that's what you want is an objective overview of what you're doing Um, that means to be careful about anybody who's doing commissions because they're going to point you in that commission direction we are fee only advisors so it's very Mm. important when you talk to somebody who puts themselves out there as a financial advisor or financial planner how are you paid that's one of the most important questions you can ask and as long as you understand what that arrangement is it's fine so we are fee only we don't do any commissions there are some who are fee based so they charge you a fee as well as putting you in some commission products and then there are other advisors who are strictly commission we do have a problem with that because I think there is a um, conflict of interest and most people don't understand what they're paying as far as commission products. Um, so look at those differences. Look at um, the credentials of that advisor's uh, are they CFPs, certified financial planners? We are CFAs, chartered financial analysts. Um, what is their education? What is their experience? And don't be afraid to ask for references. You can ask, uh, give me the names of some people you've worked with. And of course, they're going to give you the names of people who like them. <laughs> but you can also find out a lot of good information. You can even meet face to face with an advisor. So we offer that for somebody who just wants to come in. They're not looking for advice on the front end. They're just looking looking to look us in the eye and see if this is a good fit because it is important that you fit well with that person because you're going to be giving them all kinds of personal financial information and you need to be comfortable with them. You need to trust that they will take care of that and that they're going to give you good advice. Susan has called in from Tennessee. Susan, you're on the air with us. Go ahead, please. Yes. Uh, 
my nephew passed away recently and left a 10-year-old daughter, and I would like to do a little investing for her. And I was wondering if savings bonds were still a thing and if that would be a good investment for a 10-year-old. Uh, savings bonds uh, are still a thing. I was just looking at rates on those um, earlier. I, I don't know the rates are, even after just saying, the rates on this uh, savings bonds right now are pretty low, 2.1%. I mean, that's that's like half of what any other savings rate is. I'm not sure uh, that that's a very attractive proposition. For someone who's 10 years old, a couple of things to think about is what do you want to be investing for? Why do you want to invest for them? If it's just so that they have some money later and it's in cash, then, well, I guess a bond or a savings account might be fine. Uh, if it's specifically you want to help save so that uh, they can go to college one day, you might want to look at uh, your state's 529 plan. Uh, every state runs one. I'm not super familiar with the Tennessee one, uh, but there is one there where you can put money away specifically designated towards college or higher education expenses. Super flexible. We love talking about those. We have several episodes on those. Uh, or do you want to invest to get her interested in investing? Uh, there are, and, and, and in that case, I would suggest that there's a lot of things that are more interesting than a savings bond. Uh, there may be companies she's interested in, places she likes to shop or uh, entertainment sources. So Disney is a classic uh, for kids. If they like Disney movie, buy them some Disney stock and and show them how that how that stock moves. Uh, that's the first thing I would consider is what are you investing for and, and why? So, Rodder, what are some things to think about when looking for that advisor? Yeah, so I just kind of want to expand on a couple of things Nancy said because we covered a lot there. Uh, Not only just what are they paid, but how are they paid. So she noted that you can be paid through commission. You can be paid uh, by a fee. Think about who is paying that person because whoever is paying you is the person you're responding to. If, If you as the client are the person paying your advisor, great. They answer to you. Uh, if they are paid by some other company, so for instance, someone called about uh, someone offering some mutual funds to her. It may be that that mutual fund company pays that advisor to offer those funds. So while those funds might be fine, while they might be getting very good advice, understand that there's a conflict there and understand who they answer to. Uh, So think where that money is coming from and how they are paid and how that affects their interests and yours. You want y'all's interests to be aligned. You want to be the person paying your advisor because then they are only going to get paid if, if you are successful and happy. Um, a lot of times people talk about the the price you're paying, and nowadays I feel like most if, if you're an expensive advisor, I mean that's we just don't see that as often. There are still some folks who I think charge a bit much, but the main uh, the main argument now, the main thing to look for is what value are you going to get? What other things are they going to help you with? It's it's really easy. You can get decent investment management and decent investment recommendations for a lot of places. If you have a if you have an online brokerage account, there's probably a tab you can click and answer a few questions, and it gives you some perfectly. F- 
fine investment recommendations. Now, the value of an advisor just in the portfolio is making sure that you understand why you're doing it, making sure you understand that risk. So when that portfolio is looking really bad, they can help you understand what lies ahead and, and, and why did we invest in this in the first place? And, and, and is that still appropriate instead of you just making a rash decision? Um, then what else do you get for your money? Are they helping you uh, get prepared for your taxes? Are they helping you uh, get your mind wrapped around what your estate is going to look like and what you're going to pass on to your kids and help help you optimize those things uh, and working with your CPAs and your state attorneys on things like that? Are they helping you out in other areas of your financial life? And then one thing that Nancy said, super, super, super important. Uh, do you trust them? Do you like them? You're both going to be sharing very intimate, important information, and and we can give someone the best advice in the world. But if they just don't believe us, if they're just like, oh, yeah, Nancy said that I should save more money, but something about her, I just don't, I just don't get that. Uh, if you're, if if they're not going to present things in a way that you understand and uh, you can you can get behind, then it's just it's just not the right person for you, no matter how good they are. Um, also, there is a word, and we've heard a lot about this word in the last few years, and that's fiduciary. Oh, yes. Oh, I was gonna- so, um, and it was funny when that word became so prominent in the media, we got phone calls from our clients saying, are you a fiduciary? And we're like, well, yes, we've always been a fiduciary. We've been a fiduciary yes. since before it was cool. <laughs> so if you, we are what's called a registered investment advisor, which means we are required to be fiduciaries. And that means we are required to put the interest of our clients ahead of our own interest. And not everyone who works in the financial business is under that same standard. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Nancy Lodger-Janderson, president of New Perspectives, and Ryder Taft, portfolio manager at New Perspectives. They aren't in the studio this morning, so instead we're re-airing some recent discussions we've had on the show. This segment on budgeting begins with a call from a listener. Cleon is on the line. Good morning. You're on the air with us, so go ahead. Good morning. I just wanted to offer a suggestion for couples because I wish I had saved my, my figures But back in 1972, I put pencil to paper and figured out that there was no way that I could afford to take a job. I made too much money as a housewife, and what you spend is not taxed. Uh, uh, Cooking from scratch, outside of of what? Underwear and shoes, um, I made most of our clothes, clothes the drapes to keep the heat out in summertime, open them to let the sun in in winter, Um, did for myself. Uh, I remember when I was working in the kitchen and my husband passed behind me and asked what I was doing. And I told him, well, I'm, I'm turning 29-cent chicken into $2 chicken because I was cutting it up and freezing it uh, in portions that I would use to cook. That if people would stop and think what it costs, this is when gas was 29.9 cents a gallon. When people would stop and think what it costs to commute for the kind of clothing it takes to do it, for the expenses at home that you cannot control because you're not there so much of the time, uh, I think a lot of people, a lot of couples could profit from thinking about it this way. Yeah, so that's interesting, and I really like that you said that you put pencil to paper and figured out that. And and so this is, you know, for some people they might fi- look at their spending and and see that okay, well, like you, uh, well, am I spending so much on the things that are 
keeping me in a job. You know, when I have a job, then I need to uh, pay for my clothes because I can't make them. And uh, you know, unfortunately, I think feel like a lot of a lot fewer people are making their own clothes these days. But do I need to pay for a car that's going to get me to work? And do I need to pay for that commute? And is it a long commute? Is it worth it to continue doing that? Am I spending money? Is the job itself too expensive? Would it make sense to take a lower paying job closer to home or that had fle- more flexible hours or like you said, not at all. And especially that... The only, that, it, the only figure that sticks in my mind was the, the last number that decided it, that if I could have traveled no farther than 15 minutes, excuse me, 15 miles each way, and if I could have cleared $15,000 a year, it would have been a break-even proposition money-wise, but mm-hmm. it would have sacrificed the lifestyle. Yeah, and that's an important consideration. Lifestyle considerations, not having a job allowed her to make sure she prepared food in an economical manner, made sure she was able to take care of the house, made sure she was uh, possibly you – know, one issue that comes up a lot these days is, is child care, something that uh, now that I have a child, I'm talking with a lot of friends who uh, we talk about the cost of child care and how one or another couple is able to afford it. And, and that's a big debate amongst people, especially if you have multiple multiple children and you have to hire help or you know, uh, hire someone to help clean the house or take care of the children in the morning or take them to daycare, it can become more expensive than what you may make at work. And so you need to look at, well, what are the benefits of me working? Of course, if you're on a career path and it is, it is what gives you fulfillment and it is going to be lucrative in the future, then it probably still makes sense to make the uh, have the expense of child care that, that allows you to go further because that's not going to be forever. Yeah, they'll, they'll go to school at some point, although some people do send their children to expensive schools and again uh, maybe a case of uh, not being able to afford that lifestyle all right uh, cleon thanks for the call and uh, you know a quick follow-up there too is that she mentioned some kind of simple things that saved money and i know when we talk about the monthly spending plan that, that this comes up that people might the first thing might be well i i can't cut expenses you know mm-hmm. but if you kind of just take a look at it there are some ways that you can uh, cut back on it and uh, and and save money and 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 go that way that way yeah and i just want to reiterate the thing that she said she said she put pencil to paper on that and also she said that she uh, was turning i love that she turned 29 cent chicken into two dollar chicken so she knew the price of the alternatives and so that's another thing that you do when you look at your budget you say okay well i'm currently spending i'm currently spending two dollars on chicken is there a way i could spend only 29 cents on chicken uh and cleon did figure out a way she could spend only 29 cents on chicken instead of two dollars on chicken, which I think I, I think that was really great. A lot of lot of lessons there, all packed into a brief statement. I love it. And it might be that you start cooking and find it's something that you enjoy doing, and so that might be you know uh, something that turns into a passion or whatever. So uh, we got another caller on the line, and so we say good morning this time to Mike in Hernando. Mike, go ahead. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, you guys. I've lived all over the country. I was in television news from California to New York, and I moved to Mississippi 25 years ago. And what I wanted was a Mississippi bank, and I banked with Bancor South. In the interim, Bancor South merged with Cadence, and now it's Cadence Bank. And a lot of people in this area were upset, first with the name change, and then you wondered, well, is it no longer a Mississippi bank? Is specifically wanting a local state bank like Trustmark's a Mississippi bank, but is it? You know, I mean, nowadays, no telling who owns the bank could be somebody in California owns it. Is that a 
kind of a useless prerogative to want a local or state bank when nowadays there's no guarantee it's a, a bank in and of the state. Yeah, so that's an interesting question. Actually, we were talking about that uh, in between uh, on our on the break. Is so one thing about Cadence, Trustmark, well, previously Bancorp South, all these larger banks, they're all publicly traded. So the owners are people across the country, around the world, uh, largely institutions. Of course, local banks probably are do have more local ownership. But I, I always find there is something about supporting local businesses, be it uh, going to a local restaurant or going to a local store rather than a chain or going to a local bank. Um, however, you can. I think the important thing about it is the sort of understanding of the community and the customer service that you're getting from somebody. And you can have a banker who does take the time to understand the community, understand your needs and your community needs um, very well, even though they work for a larger bank. So I, I wouldn't feel bad about going to a larger bank uh, that is you still feel meets your needs but I do I do definitely understand uh, and 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 support folks who want to support uh, the local banks I will say there are a, a lot of the local banks are much smaller banks uh, ones that are only in the state of Mississippi are usually much smaller I think I want to say um, uh, bank first is the uh, one of the kind of only in Mississippi banks, maybe some branches in Alabama. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, so that's one way to get a local one. But again, if if a local bank is also not meeting your needs, then I don't know that that matters. And just for the record, Cadence, they are now, I mean, they are using Tupelo, uh, Mississippi as their headquarters. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's going to be forever. Uh, I don't know what their kind of expansion plan, but th that does seem to be they're still ultimately uh, supporting Tupelo by remaining there. Well, my prerequisite was wanting to support Mississippi and Mississippi investors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I wanted a Mississippi bank. And then when they merged with Cadence, and I know Cadence is not a Mississippi bank, but they took the name. And yes. And a lot of people in this area were upset. And I left my money there, and I figured, well, what the heck? They're still out in Tupelo. Yeah, well, and 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 Nancy and I were talking about the the names. Um, bank names seem to be getting more and more generic, so that they can be seem a little less regional. If you want to expand outside of the South, then you don't want to have South in the name of your bank. Uh, I, I will say, of the large banks, um, especially something like that was uh, Bancorp South or. or or trust mark the larger banks the publicly traded banks one of the big benefits is that they do keep their headquarters a lot of their knowledge base and a lot of their support goes to where their headquarters at so um, mm -hmm. that kind of supports what you're saying and and I will say again benefit uh, they are still listing that their headquarters are Tupelo again I don't know how centralized that is uh, how centralized those operations are or if it's kind of just, well, we say it's Tupelo, no, we have an office in Tupelo. I, I can say this. I've been out there. They're, in, they're building. Everything's huge. Uh, it's a gigantic bank. And that was the confidence I had in them to stay with, with Cadence now because it's a huge bank. And the operations out there are, are tremendous. And, you know, I know it's still local investors. Mississippians are in the bank. So it's not – it was just really the name change that kind of got everybody. But you have to get used to that. Banks change.
We're talking about budgeting, the monthly spending plan. And, uh, you know, um, Cleon used that phrase, and we said it a couple of times, pencil to paper. So there are apps and programs mm-hmm. that you could buy to start a budget. But really, to get started, put pencil to paper Absolutely. and do what? Uh, so put pencil to paper and write things down. Is that the correct answer? Uh, so, yeah, I, what I would say, also a good activity is if you do put your spending on a credit card or on a debit card, get those accounts where you your spending comes out of and and kind of highlight the things that are regular spending, maybe categorize things. There's a lot of different approaches. Some people want to say categorize, okay, this is groceries, this is dining out, this is entertainment, this is this, that, and the other. Categories like that. Uh, one method I've started using is what is not category so much, but how easy it is to change that spending. So my electric bill, look, I can't really do a whole lot about that. I can I can switch off a few lights. I can use the AC a little bit less, but I have to pay that electric bill. I have to pay things like gasoline and maintenance on my car. I have to pay my mortgage. Um, I pretty much have to pay for groceries, although I have a little wiggle room there. But dining out, movie tickets, uh, travel for you know, for fun, I don't have to do that. So I can – those are the categories that I lo- look at. You know, How much can I affect it or versus uh, how much is, is locked in? And so, yeah, just it's adding all those numbers up and kind of seeing, seeing where you are is, is – that is where you start. I like that because you're right. I, you know, I tried to do the, the category one a couple of times and then you uh, – maybe this is just me, but I get stuck between, well, does this go in this or this mm-hmm. or that? Or, right. But I like the idea of the priorities because, again, you know, as you said, these are the ones that you, you can't mess with. And then as you get down there, that's where you can find the wiggle room and that's where you can find to save the money in, in your budget. And, and that's where you might think, OK, so it, for me, dining out, I always bring that up as an example. That is something I have a lot of control over because I could eat out less often. I could order less expensive items off the menu. I could, I could pack my lunch more often, as uh, as the case is sometimes, or I could go to less expensive restaurants. So that's something where I have a lot of control over, and uh, also that's something where I, I can see. Okay, well, I spent too much in my dine in, in in that category, so I need to cut back in some way. And also that tells me. Okay, say say I have travel and gifts and dining out and clothes, uh, you know, and so I can say, okay, well, if I really want to spend that money dining out, then I'm going to have to cut back in something else. In this final segment of the show, the discussion is about paying down debt. And if I remember, the snowball method is you pay off the card with the smallest debt You got first. it, yeah. Mm-hmm. And Make then, that snowball grow. Right, whereas the avalanche method, you pay off with the largest balance first. The highest interest. The highest interest rate. Yeah. That's yep. it. Okay. <clears throat> uh, and just f- any just kind of basic thoughts, do you, uh, Ryder, do you f- see one method uh, preferable to the other, or do you think it depends on a person's uh, particular circumstances? It does depend on a person's circumstances and what those debts actually are. So the snowball method is great uh, psychologically because you – if you have a handful of debts out there, a handful of credit cards, loans, etc., there's going to be one of them that's small. And you can knock that one out maybe today. Maybe it's going to take a few months, maybe a year or something. But you can knock that one out quickly or more quickly than the others. And that's going to provide a little bit of boost so you can say, you know, I can do it. So if, if you're really struggling under the kind of psychological weight of that debt, the snowball method can be super helpful. The avalanche method is really focused on let's make this the lowest dollar cost as possible. 
by paying off the highest interest rate first, which may be a bigger debt, but in the long term aims to save you more money. Now, if you have a lot of debts that are kind of all similar interest rates, then it's it's not going to matter as much. You know, if, if you're paying off, if your highest interest rate is eight percent and your next highest one is seven percent, you know, it, it's not it's not going to make a huge difference which one you pay off first if you have the same dollars going to them. So it does depend on the person and kind of how the debt is affecting them, and it does depend on what those debts actually are. And I would challenge our listeners to actually find that interest rate that you're being charged. Most people cannot tell us when they come and sit down with us. Um, go find every statement, latest statement on every card that you have. What is the balance? And what is that interest that you're paying? I think it's going to make your eyes pop out. Mm-hmm. Um, what about sort of combining? Maybe, you know, you work on the uh, the highest interest rate and when that gets paid off, then the lowest amount. I mean, I guess that could work if, if sort of combining the two methods. Um, any thoughts on that? I mean, I, I think a comprehensive plan is going to involve more than just a single solitary rule because not to try to make it too complicated today, but there are also debts with different terms and different requirements. And um, some may actually have really generous terms. Some may, for, for instance, student loans. You can go to forbearance. You can go onto different payment plans. You can check, you know, if your income is lower, then you may qualify for a lower payment. You may qualify for some forgiveness. If you are two years away from some forgiveness, there's no point in ramping up your payments on student loans. I'm not going to say there's no point, but in general, it might be beneficial to wait and get that forgiveness rather than trying to be aggressive about that repayment. So just the terms of the loans, the terms of the debts matter as well. And not all debt is bad debt. Certainly your mortgage, because you need to have a place to live, and most mortgages have lower interest than what you will see on a credit card. Watch what we say right now. I know. (laughs) I know. It's a little different now, but you usually have uh, lower rates on those because those are secured loans, and they're secured by real estate. Um, So that's a place to live. I don't worry about that. As long as you are making those payments. Uh, Exactly. Let's not miss miss that minimum. And of course, when we're doing any debt payment plan, don't miss a minimum payment on anything. Right. But we're talking about directing your extra money. Exactly. Don't sacrifice your mortgage payment to make a payment on the credit card. That's ridiculous. Um, Car loans, even though we're starting to see higher rates on those car loans, if that reasonable car, not some fancy sports car, but that reasonable car gets you to your job, then that's an investment in producing more income. So don't worry about that. But a uh, good point that but that you don't it's because you're working on, you know, debt A in the snowball method. That doesn't mean that you just can forget about debts B, C, D and E. Uh, you As you mentioned, at least pay off the minimum of everything and concentrate your extra efforts on either the uh, the low balance or the high interest rate, whichever method you choose or whatever plan you've come up with. Let's uh, go to the phones. We will start in Jackson. Charles has called in with a comment for us. Good morning, Charles. You're on the air. Go ahead. Good morning. How how's everybody doing? Doing you, well. What do you have for us? Well, you know, I was I was listening listening to the conversation about credit card debt and did a quick look and it said that the as November twenty second or twenty third of this year, the credit card debt and you you may have already covered this and I just missed it. The, the credit card debt was like nine hundred ninety five billion dollars. Wow. 
in, in this country. And the it says that the average debt is like six thousand eight and eight dollars. Mm-hmm. And so, so I'd be wondering about why, why does people, why would people charge that much, that much on credit cards? And Nancy, you mentioned like the high, high interest rate. Because it's, and the, and the question that I, that I wonder is that does that mean that people in this country that everybody just scraps so hard financially uh, because I, of how? Yeah. You know, I, I'm going to say it's just easy. It's easy, Charles. And, you know, Ryder just talked at the top of the show about um, people traveling and spending, uh, what our retail numbers are. Are It's not that we're so strapped at this point because most people are working and wages have gone up. It's because we've gotten so comfortable with well, we just want to get what we want when we want it. And it's so easy to plunk down that card and not think about the interest that you are accumulating, which we now see those average rates are around 21%. And we've had several callers of the last few weeks calling in with cards at almost 30%. So um, when we work with people who get into some sort of financial problem, we can bet it's going to be related to credit cards almost all of the time. And the inability to really uh, cons- control that consumer debt and control your impulses. And if there's something that you want, save for it. Or if you have to put it on a card, pay it off in a very short order. Okay, so this is something that I was looking at last night and 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 trying to do some research on. Uh, so let's just kind of round some numbers off. There's a trillion dollars in credit card debt, and they measure this kind of at a moment. Right. Today, there is a trillion dollars in credit card debt. That's a good round number. Now, there is about 14, 15 trillion dollars of consumer spending. Just because there's this credit card debt, we think, oh, my goodness, this is terrible. This is a massive amount that people owe. Yes. But that also includes the people who pay their credit cards off every month. It doesn't mean that this is a trillion dollars accruing interest at 30%. But when you're talking about average household debt it's at over 6000 that yes. is revolving. It is not being paid off, off every month. Uh, some of it, again, some of it is. And uh, household, uh, so so debt service payments, so the amount of our household um, income that goes towards paying off all sorts of debts, it's, it's not... High, it's not low. It's been lower. It's you know, it's it's about where it was in 2019, uh, 2020. It dropped down a lot because people paid off cards. People weren't putting as much on cards, uh, and it's kind of bounced back up. Part of that's a lot, you know, due to mortgage increases uh, and then interest rates on credit cards. But if you think about just the amount, it is it would be purely possible. It's very hard to get information on this because the credit card information uh, industry is so spread out. There's thousands of banks issuing credit. cards. Cards. There's there's non-bank entities. You can get them from stores. You can get them from a community bank. You can get them from a huge bank. So it's really hard to get that information. It's easy to get the debt information, but it's hard to get how many people are actually carrying that balance over month to month. But for instance, if everyone put every single dollar of consumer spending on a credit card, they don't. Like, let's be clear, they don't. 
and everyone paid all of it off, you would expect us to have about a trillion dollars worth of credit card debt. Now, that being but said, that is absolutely not, not what is happening. happening. Yeah. But again, when you see that trillion dollar level, it is not the same thing as saying we have a trillion dollars in student loans or a tr- or however many trillion dollars in mortgages. It does not mean that that is not money that's just paid off. And then, of course, put back on, of course, the next month. But it does not mean that that is interest bearing. It does not mean that that is burdensome. So that top line number, it's fascinating, but it, it just, it does not tell us nearly well, what we need to know about credit card Let's go beyond that to still say that we do know average household balances are going up. And um, and that happens when people get very comfortable and certainly feel like I've got a job, I can spend, I can do what I want to do. But so is spending. Yes. Yes. My my credit card balance this month is much higher than last month. Well, you but traveled. I'm still going to pay it off. Right. But so, again, I'm that balance, to that you, top line number. I mean, again, we still have the same advice to any individual with credit card debt. Absolutely pay that off. Absolutely. And yes, some of the increase in credit spending is interest-bearing, balance, burdensome on households. But again, that top-line number, it it is a thrilling and shocking number, but it does not tell us nearly what we need to know to assess the situation in individual households. Thanks for joining us for this best of episode of Money Talks. And remember that you can always email the show with your personal finance questions. It's money at mpbonline.org. You're listening to MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.